I'm Damien Fowler. And I'm Elise Liffring. And welcome to this edition of The Current Podcast. The Current is your deep dive into the future of TV, media, and data-driven marketing, all explained in plain English. We talk to the biggest names in digital marketing, and this week we sit down with Lee Walsh, the global head of media at Uber. Lee is focused on brand marketing for the company that describes itself as the only truly global mobility and delivery app. It's a company that has thrived by adapting itself to every market it has entered. Uber is available in more than 10,000 cities across 70 countries. Lee joined Uber in July 2021 as head of media in APAC before moving from Singapore to San Francisco to become the global head last April. During that time, the company's moved to link the two products for which it's best known, its taxi business and its eats delivery business under a membership program called Uber One, which has now 12 million members after its membership doubled in 2022. The company has prioritized brand marketing across its many markets. We started out by asking Lee if he has a global view of the brand. Uber is obviously a big global brand. But if you think about the Uber product, it's very local. And in some ways, I think it's like the ultimate local product. You use the app, you get food delivered to your door, you get a car coming to your door. So I actually think our work is best when we show up locally, when we show up in local media. When we show up in something we talk about internally is culturally relevant local moments. So that could be a sporting sponsorship. It could be a major holiday in a particular country. But what that means for our media marketing campaigns is we don't really do global campaigns. We've got global guidelines. We've got things we want to stand for globally. But how those come to life, I think we're most successful when they are tailored very much for the markets where we're operating. The other thing about Uber, which not everybody realizes if you live in a specific country, is our product is different in lots of markets. So in some markets, we are essentially like a taxi organization only, and some we're delivery, and others like membership is a huge part for us. And even within those products, what we offer could be very different. So if you take delivery, some it's fast food, and that's probably what we're best known as. If you look at some of our style markets, where we've had a lot of growth recently is around things like alcohol delivery. Grocery delivery is a a huge market for us. Pharmacy. One of our taglines is get anything with Uber. And that really encompasses the company's long-term vision. That sounds like it's very much consumer-driven then at the level of the local market. I mean, I know that you're in 10,000 cities across 70 countries. That's kind of mind-blowing, really, when you think about it. And yet, at the same time you talk about local marketing, there is a consistency to the uh, Uber brand. Everyone knows what Uber stands for and Uber is. And I think that's probably one of our differentiators. Internally, we talk about the power of the platform. So we've got lots of competitors. So in every country, there is a delivery competitor. In every country, there is a mobility competitor. But we're the one international global player. And that definitely helps with certain segments of our target audiences. So, you know, the most obvious one is business travelers or people just traveling for vacations. And that really reflects a lot of the work we do around airports because they are such valuable trips for us. We take airports for an example. We talk about winning every leg of an airport trip. At the moment, we're really successful in winning from your home to getting to your airport. What we want to do is then when you land at your international destination, that the first thing you think of is getting an Uber. We want to win every leg. So from the home to the airport, from the airport to the destination city, wherever they're going on holiday to business, and then when they come back to their home country. And we've had a few product enhancements recently around that, which I think are really cool. So we've got this integration with 
Gmail. So if you get your travel itinerary sent to your Gmail, if you agree to that in a privacy compliant way, Uber can read your travel itinerary. And we've got a product called Uber Reserve, which then lets you book an Uber in advance for all four legs of your journey. And if your flight is delayed, your driver will know that. A car will be there to pick you up when your plane arrives. So I think it's a really cool product enhancement. And going back to some of my other roles where I used to travel constantly, you could imagine you would use that a lot. Yeah, you know, we want to actually touch on your background too. Before this, you worked as the head of media in Singapore and then moved to the US. So having had that background in Asia, can you talk about what you've learned about the state of digital media there? And maybe tell us like what's different? Like where's the innovation coming from? I feel like I needed to work in the US at some point to get it out of my system. I spent most of my career working in Europe the last 10 years in Singapore, and then I had six years in Australia. In all those regions, there was always this feeling that the US was advanced. You know, you're doing good work here, but look at the stuff coming out of the US, like a different level. And in some ways, the US is quite advanced, especially when it comes to things like CTV. But in general, the very different media markets, I'd say, first of all, Asia is so diverse. Like there's so many countries, so many different media environments within Asia. Like if you take Japan, which is essentially, they built their own ecosystem. It's very closed. Then if you cut somewhere like Australia, which is actually very similar to uh, the US, where you've got some legacy publishers. But in between those, you know, especially in Southeast Asia, so markets like Indonesia, Vietnam, India to a certain extent, you've got really vibrant startup ecosystems. You've got young populations. You've got an entire generation who desktop just wasn't a thing. So when the internet really took off a broad swathes of their populations, everything was mobile first. And that's really interesting because if you look at some of the directions that's happened in those countries, it just couldn't happen in a market like the US because I think the US, you still had legacy broadcasters who controlled a lot of the spend or the media products. There just wasn't those restrictions in Southeast Asia. So you've seen some just really smart and clever uses of app technology and marketing technology. You know, I would like to touch on Uber One, which launched shortly after you joined in 2021. It now has like 12 million members, which is a ton. Can you tell us about how you're marketing this specifically? Probably take a step back and like the reason we have Uber One. And again, it goes back to the concept of the power of the platform. When we look at analysis of our consumers, we may find that somebody is a really heavy mobility user, but they may not have used alcohol delivery or grocery delivery. And then vice versa, we may have somebody who just uses us for fast food on a Friday night. But what we want to do is, if somebody's an Uber consumer, for them to use all the relevant products which we offer. For me, when I joined Uber, I just didn't realize how deep the app was and everything that we had to offer. So really, the overarching goal of Uber One is to make our most loyal consumers feel valued and to reward them. But then also to try and make those consumers use all aspects of our product. And the launch has gone really well. It's surpassed all of our targets in terms of the number of members. We find that when people sign up, it actually makes economic sense for them. If you take a few taxi trips a month or if you take a few orders, you quickly pay back your monthly subscription fee. The team are constantly looking about how we enhance the services and benefits we offer to Uber members. And I don't think this is kind of unique to Uber, the idea of identifying your valuable consumers and then how you surround that user with benefits which are unique to that organization and to keep them in your ecosystem. One of the challenges with us, but I think a lot of app-based companies, is we call it dual use. Sure, you've all done it if you're 
getting a taxi somewhere, you may open up Lyft and you may open up Uber to compare the prices. And that's something we want to avoid. And I think what happened a lot in the past was a pricing war. That doesn't benefit anyone. It doesn't benefit drivers because the tech rates are lower. It doesn't benefit us or our competitors. So we really want to build a loyal user base who use Uber first and primarily. And then as a last resort, they might drill that. You have both apps open. How do you make sure from a brand perspective that there is a differentiated experience when somebody calls up an Uber? I think historically what a consumer would think about is price. So am I getting an Uber a dollar cheaper than a Lyft? And in the past, I think what we've done in our industry or in similar industries is the organization may subsidize rides or they may constantly try to undercut by a dollar. That's not really sustainable. And if you look at a lot of the competitors in our space who got funding, they subsidize rides or deliveries, but it's not sustainable. It's not a long-term business model. So that doesn't make sense for us. What we want to do from a brand perspective is obviously have a competitive price and to be on par with our competitors. But we also want people to understand all the other benefits of using Uber. So whether that's the extra insurance they get as a consumer or a driver driving with Uber, extra safety features we get, extra checks we do with drivers, more things like Uber One, where if they use us, they also get a bunch of other benefits across our products. The main thing is making sure that we're building a sustainable business as opposed to just looking for short-term growth or growth today or tomorrow. I know that brand marketing in Uber is a sort of separate thing from the performance marketing. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those two aspects of Uber marketing and how they complement each other and how they work together. Probably the most pertinent question that we talk about within Uber marketing is measurement, how brand and performance work together. If you think about Uber's industry, whilst we think Uber's the strongest app, from a consumer perspective, in many ways, they think it's a commodity. So if you order a taxi, an Uber may turn up, but that same driver could also drive a Lyft. So from a consumer perspective, all they'll see, the only difference is the brand and the power of the brand. If you think about brand building by its very nature, it's long-term. If you're saying doing Super Bowl or sponsor French Football League, that's a long-term commitment and it takes time to see a brand return from that activity. If we had brand and performance together, I think the danger a lot of brands fall into is looking for immediate results. So we've invested some money in advertising. We want to see what impact that has had straight away on trips and orders, basket size. Uber made the decision a few years ago to split up brand and performance and the brand KPIs are definitely more long-term where we look at the health of the brand. You know, we don't really need to look at brand awareness anymore because Uber is so well-known, but we look at what's below brand awareness and it changes by country. So is it preference? Is it saliency? So what are the measures which show that brand investment is having a long-term impact on consumers? And then the performance team, where all the work is managed in-house, they're looking more, much more short-term measures, so almost on a daily basis of how many orders did we get, how big was the basket size, and their approach is very much to try to get small incremental improvements every day, which over a long term has a huge impact downstream on the business. Having said that, what we're very conscious of is running two campaigns separately doesn't make sense because the consumer doesn't understand the difference between a brand campaign or a consumer campaign. So we want to make sure the creative has the same look and feel. We want to manage things like frequency. So we don't want a consumer seeing 100 performance ads and then one brand ad. So that's something where we're doing a lot of work on at the moment is to try and make the two campaigns work more seamlessly together. 
you were talking about being part of large cultural moments. And one of the campaigns for Uber One was actually on the Super Bowl. Can you talk about why tentpole events are important like this? I know you've advertised too around the Australian Open and March Madness. What really connects to consumers? You think about how the media landscape has evolved over the last 10 years or so. There's a lot of fragmentation in how people consume media. Even Not even that long ago, like eight, nine years ago, you may see a whole swath of a population tune in at seven o'clock for a big primetime show. That doesn't really exist anymore with the exception of what we call big cultural moments, which are typically live sports. And I was actually pulling up a stat for another presentation showing the top 100 broadcast shows in the US and it was something like 90 of them were sports events. There's no other media vehicle where we can reach really large populations at scale than things like live sports and sponsorships. It also allows us to get quite a lot of cut through over a short period. And we look at those vehicles when we are, have got something big to say. So this year around the Super Bowl, Creative was all around Uber One and it was like the big push for Uber One in the US. And I think the other thing I'd say about things like Super Bowl is probably as a non-American and I probably like this is the first year I've been in the States when we're signing off a Super Bowl campaign. Sometimes you can, if you looked at them purely on a media metrics perspective, you know, if you took away the word Super Bowl and you just kind of anonymized all the media placements, you say, wow, this is, what is this individual placement? It's so expensive. It's such a short period of time. And I think that's where some of your kind of media metrics or some of your measurement results may give you a steer to say, this doesn't make sense. But one thing we try to do at Uber with our brand data science teams, our research and insights team, is to look at the total value or the total impact of those big temple campaigns. Because again, no other medium or no other single buy can give you that amount of buzz over a short period. But they are expensive. And whenever we look at those really expensive temple campaigns, it's something we evaluate in depth before we go ahead with them. Like take it really seriously, the money we spend. We know how hard earned that money is from our drivers and we're fortunate to get to invest it in media. So it's definitely a very considered decision when we do go for those kind of big and very expensive campaigns. And again, it's not just the spot. It's the creative around the Super Bowl. There's such high expectations that the creative will be something new. Uber uses celebrities in our spots as well, which obviously adds to the cost. I think something we've learned over the years is when we do those tentpole campaigns is how do we make them part of a longer integrated campaign? This year, our Super Bowl campaign like actually runs for about six months. What I loved about that campaign is that you use Diddy, right? Uh, you're saying Diddy don't do jingles. This, see, I, I remembered it. I found other campaigns in different markets where you used celebrities from the UK, for example. To me, that's so interesting, you know, how you're finding that sweet spot in any given market. Yeah, and I find it interesting being in the global world that people will be talking about talent or celebrities in a particular country, and I have no idea who they are. Like they, Their cultural relevance to me is completely non-existent, but in those markets, they're obviously very cultural relevant. Last year, Uber participated in the video upfronts for the first time, as I understand it, and also this year. I'm curious to hear from you why you've changed the media mix a little bit, or what's inspired that shift towards streaming video possibly away from linear? Historically, Uber has been a very heavy linear TV advertiser. First thing I'd say is linear still got a place on our plans. You know, for a mass market advertiser like us, still lots of people tune in to live TV and something we're always reminding the marketing team or our teams internally is you are not the target audience. Because if you talk to a bunch of tech people, they say, well, I don't watch anything live. Everything I do is streaming. 
But then when we look at the audience figures, we still know that huge parts of the population watch live TV and it's a very important and powerful channel for them. What we see, and it's, you know, this data is published in lots of different formats, is viewership for linear TV has been falling between about 7 to 10% every year in every major market. At the same time, what happened coming out of COVID was that rates increased. Media owners who had a tough year or two with COVID then suddenly start to apply premiums to the linear TV inventory. So as a media buyer, we were kind of getting hit in both ways. We were paying more for a falling audience, and that just doesn't make sense for us. Media planning is pretty simple. You go where the eyeballs are, and as we see that shift away from linear TV, then we're moving into more formats, whether that's CTV or things like YouTube, which in a way it's itself its own CTV channel, or just other online or mobile video formats. The advantage of that is you're also reaching an audience who's migrated to those formats, but we can also be a lot more targeted with the messages and the audiences which we're going out to. Linear by its nature is mass. When we are looking at digital video formats, we're able to segment the audience a lot more. We're able to test different creatives to those different audiences and measure how they perform. And we're also to decide if there's certain audiences we don't want to target. We've got that capability within some of the platforms we use. Last year, Uber launched Uber Journey ads. This leverages Uber's like first party data and insights across mobility and delivery businesses. Basically, it presents the world's biggest companies with new services and closed loop attribution. Does this use of Uber as a media network intersect with your work in brand marketing at all? They're very different business units. I think the Uber ads business is really exciting. From an advertiser perspective, I think it's really attractive. You're reaching somebody when you've got a lot of their attention, if they're sitting in the back of a car and they're looking at your message. And when we look at the run rate or the growth of that organization, it's doing phenomenally well. So passing all expectations, it's forecast to be a billion dollar business next year. I think what's interesting for us internally is within the app, like that real estate is really valuable. We want to use some of that real estate for our own products. Say Uber One's a classic example. If you're in a car and you've got a 20 minute journey, that's a perfect time to tell people about Uber One. But at the same time, we may have an advertiser who's willing to pay us a healthy CPM for that. So how do we decide who gets priority for those messages? And I think there are some rules of engagement. The amount of Advertiser messages we have versus exactly Uber house ads. We're also pretty selective on the advertisers we allow on the app. We've actually had an advertisement within the app for a while, but that's mainly been based on merchants or restaurants. So in a way where they could get their listings higher or where they could promote special offers. Where we've seen a lot of success recently is going out to broader, bigger FMCG brands to promote it. We do talk a lot about retail media networks. I'm not sure whether... Uber is ready to become a retail media network yet. Is that sort of use of first-party data set there? Is that something that's very much on the company's mind? How does that integrate a little bit with the brand reach? Uber's really cautious around how we use our consumer data. Like when you sign up to the app, we actually don't ask you many things, but we can infer a lot of things by your use. So we know where you're getting cars picked up from. We know how often you use us. You know, we know what food you order. But is it the right thing that we use that in marketing? And in a lot of cases, if we have any doubt it's the right thing to use those data points, we don't use it. So the thing I would say from a brand marketing perspective, most of our campaigns, we want to reach a large audience. So we're a mass market advertiser and it's a mass market brand. The nature of first party data is, while Super's got a lot of users, 
it's still really small in comparison to the total addressable audience. So when we focus too much on things like remarketing or lookalike audiences, it's going to limit the success of your campaign. So you may only reach 5% of the people you really want to go after. So I think our first party data has a place in our campaigns, especially when we want to communicate to existing users or members, but it's very much not the first thing which gets on a media plan. I want to switch to a different question here about the Keep Ukraine Moving campaign, which I know Uber has been behind, and Uber's presence in Ukraine has been quite significant. Could you talk a little bit about that? One of the things which made me really proud to work for Uber, when the Ukraine conflict started, a lot of Western companies were just like, let's get out of Ukraine, let's stop everything. One of the things that happened in Ukraine with the conflict is a lot of the public infrastructure stopped. The country was at war, so buses aren't running, trams aren't running. Uber continued to operate. And now actually Uber operates in more cities in Ukraine than we did before the war. So Uber's become a really vital part of infrastructure locally. The other thing we've done is actually provide employment to a lot of people in Ukraine because obviously their economy has been really badly impacted by the war. So by us having more cities, more drivers, I think in many cases, we subsidize a lot of those rides in Ukraine. There's also uses of Uber within Ukraine where we're helping either the UN or some of the other NGOs, whether there may be certain cultural artifacts or artworks or art galleries which are at risk. Uber has provided vehicles to those NGOs or to the UN to help move those items to safe locations within Ukraine. Actually, our CEO, Dara, took a train from Poland into Ukraine to meet the government ministers, to also meet a lot of our drivers on the ground in Kiev. And again, I think that's really inspiring to see a leader who's willing to literally enter a war zone to understand how his organization is performing and you know, to really reinforce our commitment to that country. Yeah, seriously. Final question. What do you have your eye on in 2023 to 2024? Talking about 2024 just scares me. It came up the other day. It was like, let's start planning. I was like, oh, we've just got 23 out of the way. Now for me, like the upfronts are coming up, you know, being new to the US, I'm pretty excited to see the, the spectacle of the upfront events and how that, that plays into our plans next year. I think for us and my team specifically, where we want to push a lot harder is around media strategy and media innovation. Innovation can be a bit of a cliched word within media. The way we think about it is how do we take a creative idea and how do we bring that to life through media? So that could be a non-traditional use of a traditional channel. So for example, in Europe, we ran a campaign around Ramadan where our outdoor creative was counting down to the number of hours which are breaking fast. So really simple insight and using you know, very traditional out-of-home media that I thought it was a really clever use of our placements. I just think we've got so much more headroom to grow there, given not just our industry, but just like there's just so much noise in media and advertising at the moment. I think what really separates our great brands and great campaigns is really bringing creative to life where consumers are. That's the stuff that I'd love to be spending more of my time on and my team's time on. I think that creative innovation and strategy pieces uh, where will make the biggest difference. And that's it for The Current. Stay tuned because next time we'll have Noel Mack, the Chief Brand Officer of Gymshark. I'd love everybody who comes into contact with Gymshark to be able to repeat these two things about the brand, fitness and community. Really, really simple. The Current is produced by Wonder Media Network. Our theme is by Loving Calibre. 
And the Trade Desk team includes Chris Brooklier and Kat Vesey. And remember... We've got global guidelines. We've got things we want to stand for globally. But how those come to life, I think we're most successful when they are tailored very much for the markets where we're operating. I'm Damien. And I'm Elise. And we'll see you next time. 